Hi, this is Bruce Ellis Benson, the host of On Becoming. Today I'm delighted to say that we'll be talking to the Reverend Elizabeth M. Edmond, who's the author of Queer Virtue, subtitled What LGBTQ People Know About Life and Love and How It Can Revitalize Christianity. Some of you might think, Edmond, hmm, that sounds familiar. However, before we begin the interview, I'd like to take a few moments discussing why I make this podcast. Up until recently, I was a full-time professor, and if you're a regular listener, you know that I've worked at such institutions, well-known institutions as Wheaton College, the University of Leuven in Belgium, the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and the Union Theological Seminary in New York City. When I started doing this podcast last year, I was expecting it to be nothing more than a hobby, but the response has been overwhelmingly positive. And so I've decided to leave the Academy and focus on podcasting full-time. Those of you who've heard my story probably also realize that moving to podcasting means that I can finally say what I really think. And you've also responded so positively. It's truly encouraging to see our downloads grow each day and week by week, to hear feedback from you, some of whom are even former students from decades ago. Often I hear about the unique challenges faced by people in the evangelical world. I know about these challenges firsthand. Unless even in 2023, figures like Bill Gothard continue to have power and sway, and new threats like the theologically challenged folks at the Daily Wire have sprung up, spreading their own brand of hate infused with Christianity. I feel strongly that one of the reasons that this podcast is successful is that not only do we provide criticism of figures like Matt Walsh or Bill Gothard, we also try to show a new path forward, a path that truly takes at face value the claim that God is love. It's important to realize that figures like Gothard and Walsh, in effect, create a world for their listeners. It's a dark world where there are threats everywhere and the only way to counter them is by hatred, violence, and further circling of the wagons. The title of our podcast on becoming comes from Nietzsche's life motto, which is become who you are. As beings who are constantly in motion, we're always developing, and as beings who are fundamentally social and relational, those around us, both physically and digitally, have a profound effect on how we change. The danger of people like Bill Gothard and Matt Walsh is that they take the most bigoted aspects of conservative Christianity and then supercharge them. Rather than making people less dogmatic and thus more open to inquiry, they close the world of their followers and make them far more dogmatic and sheltered. If you bind the rhetoric that takes place on their programs, you will stop developing. You will become static, frozen in a world where darkness is constantly closing in and threats are always around the next corner. So I invite you to take a different path. Just like Walsh and Gothard, we're creating a world, but one where the spirit of charity is a greater power than the spirit of evil. The only thing that can truly fight radical hate is radical love. I was convinced of this long ago, but my experiences both in academia and more generally have made it clear to me 
that the fundamental choice here is really between love and hate. Jesus invites us to love our enemies, which is truly subversive of the order of hatred. While what is happening now is incredibly dangerous, it seems like every new day a story emerges about conservative Christianity tending more towards theocracy and moving further away from what Jesus teaches. The best and most Christian response is to be willing to forgive and to offer a path for redemption. But, alas, until we get to that point, we need to put up a fight, but not with hatred. We need to argue against hate and in favor of love. We need to call bad theology and bigoted philosophy out for what they are, yet also show how good theology and philosophy can lead us to a very different place. I have the very strong sense that we need to continue doing what we've been doing on this podcast. Perhaps at this point you're wondering how you can get involved. The goal of this podcast is to build a community, so I would love to hear from every one of you. Whether it's just a short note to let me know that you're listening or a lengthy critique of a recent or past episode or something in between. I've received some wonderful letters from you that have greatly gladdened my heart. At the same time, the kind of world building that we're doing doesn't always come cheap. You may have noticed that our podcast is very carefully recorded and edited. Not only is recording equipment and software pricey, This is also my full-time job. I no longer have the stable income of a university professor. So if you can, consider helping us build this community. If you're finding the podcast helpful to your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or at paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Let me add one more thing. I've recently been invited to give a talk at this year's Theology Beer Camp in Springfield, Missouri. The dates are October 19 through 21, 2023. In case you're wondering, this is like a casual conference in which people who do podcasts related to theology get together, which is why it's titled The God Pod Strike Back. But the reality is it's open to everyone. There will be talks by noted scholars and the opportunity to meet people with similar questions. If you're interested and want to attend, you can use the promo code BRUCEGODPOD. Something for you to consider attending. It'd be fun, of course, if you did, because I'd get to meet you. The description of those invited is that of theology nerd. You are the only one who can decide if that's really who you are. As for me, I'm pretty sure I qualify as the theology nerd, though my way to theology has been through philosophy. I was educated to believe the usual idea that philosophy and theology are just two different things. I don't think that's the case anymore, even if there are important differences between the two. We'll be jumping into the interview with Liz in just a moment, but let me add a few things for context. First, until this interview, I had never met Liz, and so the first few minutes of our conversation are ones in which we're discovering connections between our two worlds. I've already mentioned the episode that I taught at Union Theological Seminary in New York City. 
you may not realize that as far as liberal theology goes, Union is about as good a candidate for being on the far left. Wheaton, on the other hand, isn't quite as far right as, say, Bob Jones University, though my own sense is that it's working its way in that direction, which is sad because virtually no one takes Bob Jones seriously. But that's the price you have to pay if you want to make sure you remain uncontaminated by the world. Another way of putting the difference between Wheaton and Union, have you ever heard of antimatter? If Wheaton represents matter, then Union represents antimatter. That analogy is far from perfect, including the point that it's much more likely that Union represents matter than the other way around. But it should help you know that I have taught at places that are not just marginally different from one another, but that represent really different views of the world. In the case of Union and Wheaton, they represent two theological viewpoints within the world of Christianity, even if the folks at Wheaton would probably be inclined to think that Union is not even Christian. A second thing I should mention. Here's how I came to meet Liz. I was thinking about the ways in which queer people have endured a great deal of abuse, and I was wondering if, in light of that treatment, whether anyone ever thought to point out that queer folks might just have something important to say about ethics or morality or virtue. So I googled queer virtue, and Liz's book came up immediately. I was astounded that someone had already written an entire book on the subject and quickly bought a copy and read it eagerly. It's an excellent book, and it's also written in a way that has depth and nuance but isn't too difficult to read. A third thing I should mention is something that I alluded to earlier. As soon as I saw Liz's last name, I thought, is it possible? Because there was a guy named V. Raymond Edmond, who was the president of Wheaton College from 1940 to 1965. Edmond Chapel is where all the students gather three times per week. Yes, Edmond is Liz's grandfather, and she mentions that he carried the Book of Common Prayer around with him wherever he went. As she points out, that was back at a time in which the theological lines weren't drawn so deep and the walls between various Christian expressions had become so steep. One thing you should know about Edmund is that he was very beloved by students and faculty. When you hear from Liz, I think you'll understand almost immediately. Here's a fourth thing. Liz talks about how the Bible is a living document that doesn't interpret itself and so requires us to read it and then think about how it applies to our time. She never even mentions Gadamer's name, but the idea of how we relate to texts, particularly ancient and religious texts, is a central theme to Gadamer's hermeneutics. The Bible is not a text whose meaning has been fixed from day one. Instead, it is and always has been a living document. By the way, to read the Bible literally is just another hermeneutic. It's not the absence of hermeneutics. Finally, I should mention two figures Liz discusses. One is Phyllis Tribble, who is a feminist biblical scholar and is well known for readings of the Hebrew Bible, particularly ones that challenge the usual patriarchal assumptions. Whatever one thinks of Tribble, she has been a truly important influence in biblical scholarship. The other person I should mention is Peter Akinola, who was the head of the Anglican Church in Nigeria. Akinola's homophobic views are well known. He is against same-sex blessings, the ordination of homosexuals, and 
for that matter, homosexuality in any form. Liz talks about his work in the United States trying to, in effect, destroy the Episcopal Church by convincing individual churches and even some Episcopal Church dioceses to leave and form their own denominations. Just a quick warning. If you encounter a priest or church in the U.S. that describes itself as Anglican, you can be sure that this group is one that's no longer in communion with the Episcopal Church in the United States, which also means that Anglican churches are not recognized as being part of the worldwide Anglican communion. But on to the interview, in which we begin talking about our own respective connections to union. Hi. Hi. You were talking about the fact that you're a cradle Episcopalian. Um, And I think you were going to go somewhere with that. I was just going to say that I had sort of fallen away from the Episcopal Church when I went to college. And then uh, and and when I started at Union, I wasn't yet back in the Episcopal Church. Um, I didn't make my way back till the very end of my time at at Union. but uh, but it was a wonderful place for me to to be. Um, I went to Union partly because I was already in New York and partly to study with Phyllis Tribble, um, who now is a dear friend of mine. Wonderful. And, uh, wonderful, wonderful gift of her friendship. Yeah. What's your connection to Union? So my connection to Union is that they, for many years, when Cornell West left, they had this position that kind of got filled from time to time by various people. And so I filled that. It was mainly just me teaching this course called Philosophy of Religion, which was more or less a kind of introduction to philosophy with particular attention to themes that had to do with religion or theology or something like that. I took that class, although not not with you. When when did you start? The reason I asked is because you look so familiar. As soon as I saw your photograph, I thought, this person looks so familiar. I moved to New York City uh, about... 10 days to 14 days before 9-11 and was there for, yeah, yeah, it was pretty wow. Um, So uh, I was, was there and um, was there for, for two years because of the way the academic world works. I, I had a, a sabbatical for one year and then I had a leave of absence and the way it works in, in the academic world. And this is everywhere. Two years is just the maximum amount you can be away. If you're mm-hmm. gone for longer than two two years, then basically you just don't have a job anymore. Yeah, yeah. I came back, came back as an or went back to uh, Wheaton College where I was teaching, and continued teaching. I mean, the, the reality is that at the moment, all of the evangelical institutions are circling the wagons and doubling down, and even even places like Fuller, which you know were seen as kind of like kind of hip and happening places, even those places are now, you know, saying, no, we don't allow this and you can't think that. And I grew up knowing that I was not normal. Uh, I had a ride back with uh, my mother. She picked me up. We were living in Altadena. My father was a pastor at a, at a, a big church in Pasadena. And uh, she was driving me back from Pasadena Christian School, and I said to her, you know, Mom, I'm not like all the other kids. Mm. And she's like, oh, sure you are. I'm like, no, no, I'm not. Mm. And later, in speaking with a therapist, I came to realize that it was sort of at that moment where I kind of realized, like, 
I think I may be kind of on my own. Like she doesn't get it. And I don't think my, my, my dad got it either. And, and it wasn't, it, so I, I would have, I would have never used the word queer at age five or six because I didn't know that, that word, but I knew that I was different. Unfortunately, it wasn't until we went to general, which was located in Chelsea. And therefore I was now being exposed to so many uh, gay folks in the, the neighborhood. But even, even at the seminary, uh, I think it's safe to say that about 50% of the students were lesbian something, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, and so this gave me an opportunity to rub shoulders with people that I just didn't have that opportunity growing up. And sudden, not suddenly, but pretty quickly, I, I started to think, oh, I'm not straight. I, I'm, I'm, I'm not straight. But you see, then I still taught at Wheaton, where you have to sign uh, a covenant saying that you will not have sex outside of marriage. So that meant, of course, that I couldn't really pursue figuring out like whether it was gay or bi or eventually I got fired in 2014. They came up with all kinds of different reasons, but I'm pretty sure that the real reason was my sexuality. Um, because I know I had told someone about my sexuality who then promptly went to the administration and told them this. So I got to teach a lot of smart kids who had a lot of questions and had been bruised and, you know, things were things were difficult for them. So I felt like it was truly a ministry. And that's something I'm grateful for being able to be helpful. You know, that's you were there then when Julie Rogers was still functioning as chaplain there. And she said the same, uh, something similar to me at the time, that uh, uh, that one of the reasons she didn't feel like she could just sort of pick up stakes and go was because of the number of students who needed her there, who like des really badly needed community. And that's not just a martyr, that's not just a martyr thing. You know, if you are called to mm -hmm. community, if you are, and particularly spiritual community, you know, then you take seriously what that is to recognize their there are people there who need to be in community with you and you can, you have something to offer, mm -hmm. you know? So that makes a, that makes a tremendous amount of sense. So were you there when Peter Akinola was invited to speak at Edmund Chapel? So I would have been there. Um, the, the, the reality of course, is that there was a time when all faculty were expected to attend chapel. And then that gradually changed, you know, what happened basically there was a faculty section that just, it literally in terms of seats kept getting smaller and smaller because the student body was growing and there were only so many seats in Edmund Chapel. So no, I, I, I didn't go to hear him. Well, I, I asked because, I asked because, um, uh, so um, that was when uh, Peter Akinola, of course, was sort of the figurehead of try, of pushing the, uh, the sort of the dissolution of the Episcopal Church here, which didn't happen, but there were a number of parishes and dioceses that decided to leave and affiliate with his group uh, uh, from from Africa. And uh, so I was at Northwestern when I heard that he was uh, um, going to be speaking there. And of course, Edmund Chapel is named after my grandfather, mm -hmm. Victor Raymond Edmund. And so my sister and my brother uh, flew to Chicago and we led a protest outside the chapel of uh, turning over the chapel to um, this man who was like, trying to divide the church. 
Anyway, interesting time. I'm so sorry I didn't know about that. I'm yeah. so sorry I didn't know about that. That would have been, I, I could have met you. I know, exactly, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Well, I met some wonderful people then, I have to say. Yeah, more more interesting stuff going on at Wheaton than I ever would have known. Anyway, here we are now, and I'm so delighted to be on. Thank you for inviting me to be on your podcast. I'm delighted to be here. Oh, it's wonderful to have you, Liz. Let me just add one thing here that you might find interesting. So the first, so I went to Wheaton, and uh, I came back to teach there in the middle of my graduate studies. Uh, so this would have been 1980, fall of 1987. Frank Griswold had just become the Bishop of Chicago, mm -hmm. and he was invited to speak in chapel. Huh. Well, that's interesting. The reason I tell you that is, given the current regime, that would be utterly unthinkable. Oh, yeah. So my yeah. point is, there was a time back in the 80s and then into the 90s when places like Wheaton's were starting to open up, they were starting to be a little bit more kind of aware of the world. And then I watched as it just kind of closed down and, you know, everything just. Well, and we also, you know, we, we, we still were in a time then when uh, uh, religious leaders could talk across lines of ideology and even uh for many people across lines of faith um and tradition mm -hmm. in, in order to have conversations yeah. my grandfather um president of wheaton college carried around a book of common prayer with him everywhere he went and drew many of his prayers out of the, the book of common prayer which of course is the anglican episcopal mm -hmm. pr prayer book um not because he was an episcopalian but because he found the prayers to be so beautiful, you know, he was he was really moved by them, and you know, and that wasn't such a rare thing back then that you could, you know, mm -hmm. even form that that religious leaders even could form friendships across uh, lines of of uh, faith and and political leanings, um, uh, uh, you know, like so. It's it, it to me. It's one of the tragedies right now that are that hyper-partisanship of, of our society is also seen in hyper-partisanship among sort of religious people of different religious affiliations or different religious leanings. Um, and it's just a, it's just a shame because we have so much to mm -hmm. learn from each other. I'm not sure where we should start. Um, you said that you were cradle Episcopalian. You went to Union. And then somehow going back in the Episcopal Church seemed like an option or maybe the way to go. Or I, I'm not sure how you describe it, but I'm kind of interested to know what, what happened. So, um, wow. Wow. That's not a, I don't know if that's a story I've ever told publicly. That's interesting. Not because I wouldn't, but just because I'm not sure anybody's ever asked me. Um, so no, I, I, all my, all of my spiritual, um, leanings, desires, inclinations to me feel of a peace with call. It all feels to me of, mm -hmm. you know, this sense that of being, this being sort of like, um, beautifully summoned by the divine, you know, come here, check this out. You'll like this. Come here. <laughs> Let's hang out. So what happened for me was, um, uh, so I grew up in Arkansas and was uh, uh, part of a really beautiful community 
in the Episcopal Church, um, uh, St. Paul's Episcopal, which remains sort of a flagship, um, I don't know if I'm using that word correctly, but it's a very prominent parish in the national church. Um, uh, many people there from the University of Arkansas, so it's a beautiful community, rich life of the mind. And I grew up, I was there in the 70s when, I mean, I was a kid, but but the Episcopal Church itself was grappling with all the big issues, you know, like, do we ordain women or not? The the 1979 prayer book was coming into uh, formation. And so we were in the earlier in the 70s doing all this experimental liturgy, you know, to like sort of like to inform those those the, the thinking about what should be in the in the prayer book and how to frame our prayers and our prayer life. Anyway, so it was a rich and beautiful place. And the music was absolutely exquisite. My mother was a, a, mm. a singer uh, um, and the music was just so, so, so beautiful and meaningful. Um, uh, so we participated in that. When I was uh, 14, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, which killed her the following year. Mm. And it was people in that parish who stepped up to take care of us, including for a while, um, actually house, housing us. There was a, a particularly mm. extraordinary family in that parish and they just brought us into their home. All, all of I, and I, and I go on about this only to say that it was really important community mm. for my family and it was an important community for me in terms of being able to explore m my experience of both of transcendent reality and liturgy and what it is to 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 you know to to you know uh, encounter the sacred in community which is a wonderful wonderful place for me uh uh to 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 grow up in um when after my mother's death uh uh I sort of fell away from the church partly for family reasons, but my, my dad just didn't get us there the way my mother always had gotten us there. It was sort of a complicated thing, but, but also it was a sort of a challenging time in the church. And as I, you know, started to come of age, I was really interested in, you know, inclusive language mm -hmm, for mm -hmm. God and for humanity. And even the 1979 prayer book hadn't really grappled with those mm -hmm. kinds of yeah. questions. And I didn't understand the prayer book as something that one could have a relationship with. I really, to me, it was like, it's on the page. This is the way so many people think about scripture. And it's always one, it's one of the first like balloons that I try to puncture this idea that no, whatever it's on the page, that's why I have to accept it just like that, you know, instead of understanding no, 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 this is a, this is a living text. Mm -hmm. And we're, you know, we're built to, to engage it and to have a relationship with it. And, you know, as, as, you know, Israel, the people who, who wrestle with, with God, you know, the, to, to wrestle in the same way that our um, forebears have done. Um, anyway, so, uh, so partly because I didn't think at the time that I could have a relationship with a prayer book, I fell away from the church, found, had an extraordinary uh, uh, experience in college with my college chaplain, um, who was the 40th woman ordained in the Presbyterian Church. Um, and she was just an incredibly important uh, uh, mentor to me. She became sort of like a mother figure. This was, of course, after my mother had died, and I really needed that. Anyway, so it was under her influence that I began to I definitely, I wasn't sure if I was perceiving a call to ordained ministry, but I definitely wanted a theological education. 
Um, by that time, I had met Phyllis Scribble, uh, uh, you know, loved her work, had studied her work, and she was at Union. Um, so uh, I had a wonderful experience going to Union, beginning to make sense intellectually of the faith I had inherited as a mm -hmm. child, mm -hmm. which was actually not an easy, that was not an easy process. I almost didn't survive seminary through that mostly because my mother because my mother had died she wasn't around i wanted to say to her mama what the, what on earth were you thinking <laughs> you know and she wasn't there so it was a it was a sort of a difficult time what saved me was uh uh i uh had to do a field ed placement and i started working with folks with uh hiv aids this is you know uh sort of the, the uh, midpoint of that pandemic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I was uh, so I, I got involved providing pastoral care to folks with HIV AIDS and that became the opportunity to begin to make these clear connections between here's what I believe here's what I think I believe here's what this means for you know somebody's spiritual journey and it was in that that I really began to discuss the whisper of a call to ordained ministry to do that as my life's work. So I started looking for faith communities, like any place I could find that where there would I mean this was a tricky time, as you know, mm -hmm. you know, in, mm -hmm. in religion. If you I was already completely out of the closet as a lesbian. Mm -hmm. And uh uh and but there weren't there just weren't denominations at that point that were like totally on board with that, including the Episcopal Church, mm -hmm. you know, um, the mainliners, we just weren't there yet, We're starting to kind of think about it, talk about it a little bit, but definitely not, not there. So I did what a lot of people I think did at the time, um, um, you know, white folks who, you know, queer, white queer folks who grew up in the, in mainline traditions, I started with the, uh, Oh, I started with the UCC church, which was a little farther ahead. And, right, uh, right. you know, and, and Riverside Church was right there next door to Union, affiliated with UCC. Um, uh, and that was okay, but it didn't have the sacrament that was, it is really the sacramental theology, sacramental expression is so important to me and my faith. It's one of the reasons I just am an Episcopalian because I just love it so much. The beauty of holiness, the touch of liturgy. Um, uh, but, but what actually took me away from UCC was that it, it wasn't in fact uh, uh, politically progressive enough for me, and and I was still trying to figure out what I believed about everything. So I wandered mm -hmm. into the Unitarian a Unitarian meeting house because they didn't really ask you to believe anything, you know, mm -hmm. honestly. And I and I don't mean any disrespect to Unitarians. Mm -hmm. Thank God, my own publisher is Beacon Press. Thank you, Unitarian Universalist Association, for for having the guts to like lift up alternate alternate voices um and and voices that are trying to like push push the cutting edge of um what we believe you know who we are um uh how we should be we should be living anyway i'm sorry that's a very 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 long answer to to not that 
long a question, but to cut to the trace here, I found myself, uh, I almost joined this Unitarian meeting house and I was part of a members group that was meeting uh, once a week. And on one particular Sunday, the senior pastor came in to talk with us about this meeting house and what they believed. And, uh, and I raised my hand and I asked, how do you make decisions as a community Hmm. about particularly about you know uh how to respond to what's going on in the world or you know like how do you decide together mm-hmm. what to do and the minister gave this you know very this rational sort of response you know like well we get together and we talk about it and we think about it and we deliberate and we come to consensus together and what he was describing was such a cerebral process mm-hmm. And I, you know, and I, and I found myself thinking, well, I didn't say this out loud. I didn't know how to. I, but I found myself thinking, do you, do you pray? You know, do you? Is that part of it? And I walked out the door of the meeting house that afternoon, and and was filled with this spiritual hunger and it was almost like a voice speaking inside of my body saying I need communion I need to take communion Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know so I uh, 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 it was right before Ash Wednesday and on Ash Wednesday I wandered into this funky little Episcopal church on the west side um, that w- with an out lesbian as the priest and the, they had a, an off-Broadway theater that was part of it. It was everything I, that I just loved in the world and uh, went in for Ash Wednesday. And uh, uh, and I knew I had come home. Um, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the preacher that evening was a seminarian from general, um, and she preached this sermon about the complexity of our call as Christians. And she said, this is the, cl- the closing words of her sermon. She said, when we're baptized, we sprinkle water on our foreheads and we expect new life. Tonight, we put ashes on our foreheads and we expect new life. And I thought, that's it. I'm home. This is <laughs> I'm back. That's an amazing sermon. Yeah. Alas, we need to stop there. The interview with Liz will continue on to the next episode, which I know you won't want to miss. I hope you found today's episode informative and more important, uplifting, and perhaps even challenging for either your thought or your actions. If you found today's episode helpful, do consider supporting us at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app with the username, our address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for a continuing discussion with Liz Edmond.